you have a Bible handy, please uh, turn in those Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16, and uh, we are beginning a new series of messages uh, this morning, looking at uh, the prophet, the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who was known as the, uh, the troubler of Israel. And uh, we'll be spending a few weeks looking at uh, the life and the ministry of Elijah and uh, praying that the Holy Spirit will use him to trouble us once again out of, our, out of our sin and into the pure love of our God. We're going to read from uh, 1 Kings 16, beginning with verse 29. And uh, this is the word of our God. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain, in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I took a few days off after Christmas, and once again there was a little painting to do in the house. So I went into the garage and I, I brought in my ladder. Have you ever gone through that experience of maneuvering your ladder through doorways, you know, ducking and shimmying down narrow hallways after that, rounding the island in the kitchen and trying not to knock off the coffee maker and the glasses on the counter? You feel a bit like a bull in a china shop. And this reminded me of, of some of the TV shows I used to watch as a kid, The Three Stooges, Gilligan's Island, Carol Burnett. 
I think all of them use that same bit of carrying a, a long ladder through a cluttered room, wheeling around and, and knocking lamps off tables, breaking windows, hitting the skipper in the pants. It was a, it was a stock comedy scene in my day. The unbending, the inflexible ladder in a room full of fragile obstacles. Comedy's come a long way since then. The prophet Elijah is like that ladder. As you try to maneuver him through your life, you keep thinking, man, I wish this guy would bend a little. But he doesn't. Elijah doesn't bend. How Elijah differs from that static comedy scene is that he's not very funny. Elijah is stone cold serious. And as we try to maneuver him through our homes, our classrooms, our offices, our families, he's constantly bumping paintings off the walls, knocking routers onto the floor, poking holes in our pride, exposing our lusts, and leaving a mass of destruction in his wake. You see, Elijah was not one to mince words, and no one, no one was safe, especially the people in power. Um, you heard what he said to Ahab in our text, right? As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Later, he again brusquely, accu- brusquely accuses Ahab, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Again to Ahab, he says, Have you not murdered Naboth and seized his property? In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, they will lick up your blood. To Ahab's son, King Ahaziah, Elijah said, You will never leave the bed that you are lying on. You will certainly die. To an officer who came to arrest Elijah, he bellowed, May fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Elijah upset a few table lamps in his time. And I'm afraid that's how we often think of Elijah, that he was a man of his time. And now times are different, right? We live in a new age, a kinder, gentler age. An age without those unmalleable, inflexible ladders. We live in the age of Jesus. What I mean is we like to assume that the Jesus we worship voids people like Elijah. And what we forget is how much Jesus actually reminded people of Elijah. Now wherever, or Jesus once said, remember, who do people say that I am? That's what he asked his disciples. And do you recall their their answer? Well, some say you are Elijah. And, And where do you think they got that impression? Well, maybe it was from some of the things that Jesus said during his ministry. Things like, 
No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's not much bend in those words, is there? And again, Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Again, there's not much accommodation in those words. No wonder he reminded people of Elijah. And there are more links between these two, Jesus and Elijah. For instance, Jesus in his very first sermon that he preaches in the Gospel of Luke, guess who he uses for his main illustration? It's Elijah. And then there's the Mount of Transfiguration. And with Jesus staring his cross in the face, who is it that meets with him for encouragement? It's Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. I'm sorry, friends, As much as we may want to, we can't stow Elijah away in the attic with the Christmas tree and the lights and the garland. We just can't do it because Jesus didn't do it. You see, Elijah is a measuring rod, and he comes to measure God's people. And the man that he measures first is King Ahab. And it's amazing to see that as you're sort of clicking your way through uh, the book of Kings, there's one biography of, after another of all of these kings, Zimri and Omri and Ahab. And then suddenly we bump up against this man named Elijah. And Elijah just appears out of nowhere. He's a man without a history. He's a man without ancestry. He's a man without bloodline. And you would think, therefore, he's also a man without authority. But here he is, out of nowhere, with a word from the Lord. And we must deal with him. And we must be measured by him. And I want to note the criteria this morning that Elijah measures by. He measures using the law of Moses. The law of God. Look again with me, if you would, at chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That's the final summary, that's the final assessment of Ahab's reign. Okay? He was the king over Israel for 22 years, and this is the summary of everything. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anyone before him. Now, does anything strike you strange about that assessment? Think about in our own day, okay? President Trump is about to leave office. What kind of criteria do we usually use to assess the success or the failures of a president of the United States? Well, there are economic criteria, right? We ask, well, did the stock market go up or down? How is the unemployment rate? How is the housing market? Where is inflation at? 
There are also diplomatic benchmarks. What's our standing with the rest of the world? Are we at war or are we at peace? Do we have more friends or more enemies? What significant treaties have we signed? All sorts of things like that. We also have social measures. Are the poor being taken care of? Are the rich getting richer? Is there peace in the streets? Are people healthy or are they sick? Those are the kinds of criteria that we use to assess our leaders in this day and age. Political, economic, social, and really those were the same kinds of markers that were used to assess the kings in Elijah's day as well. But those are not the benchmarks that are applied to Ahab in our text. See, the fact is that in those secular terms, Ahab was actually a very successful king in Israel. He was an excellent diplomat. His name still stands on the, in the writings of other countries and other kings to this day. He introduced a new fiscal system in Israel. He upped the standard of living. He built magnificent buildings. But none of those things matter to the author of Kings. All the author cares about here is that Ahab broke the law of Moses. Ahab's son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Ahab broke the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's what Elijah came to say. He came to say that Baalism and the worship of Yahweh are not compatible. And the king of all people should know that. We should probably just spend a little time talking about Baalism this morning. <clears throat> Ahab wasn't the man who introduced Baal to Israel, but he probably did more to legitimize Baalism than anyone um, before him. Ahab built a temple, we read. He built a temple for Baal right in Samaria, the capital city of Israel. He made a home for Baal in Israel. And yet Baal was still a foreigner when it came to the law of Moses. Baal was sort of uh, the weather god of the Canaanites. He was known as the rainmaker. Baal was often represented holding lightning bolts in his hands. And because he had that kind of power to control the rain, he also determined the fertility of the land and the fertility of its people. And because he was the god of fertility, he was also the god of success. He could make you wealthy. He could give you power. He could give you pleasure. That's what Baalism is all about. It was very much a me-first religion with that me-first attitude manifesting itself to the point even of child sacrifice. And whenever you have a, a me-first religion, the things Moses cared about get tossed aside and quite quickly. This is something I think we tend to miss um, in our text, and so allow me to mention three examples of where we see the influence of Baal upon Ahab. First, 
occurs in chapter 16, verse 34. We have this little interlude here about the man Hiel rebuilding Jericho. And some scholars believe that these verses are simply misplaced because they don't seem to fit the story. But in reality, they actually give us a look into the character of, of King Ahab. You see, even though Hiel built, uh, rebuilt Jericho, it was really Ahab um, that oversaw or had that city rebuilt. And if you recall, when Israel first entered the land of Israel and leveled Jericho by marching around the walls, kids, you remember that story? Joshua then put a curse on anyone who would attempt to rebuild Jericho. And he said that rebuilding Jericho would cost the builder his firstborn son and his youngest son. So no one in Israel ever tried to rebuild Jericho after that for just that reason. Until now. You see, Ahab seems to believe that, that the word of the Lord is no longer functional. It's no longer effective in Israel. That's, that's something from the past. That's not true in the present. Or perhaps under the influence of Baal, Ahab simply believes that children are expendable. And he rebuilds the city at the cost that he's willing to pay. Child sacrifice. Baalism. Next, if you turn over to chapter 18, verse 5, you see that God has brought a famine on the land. And, and in this text, Ahab is scouring the countryside looking for food. And, and that seems to be a, a natural thing to do in a time of famine. But do you remember why he's so desperate to find food? Well, if you look in chapter 18, verse 5, it says that he needs to feed his horses and mules. He doesn't want any of his animals to die. Particularly those animals that are used for battle. And what you see here is Ahab doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about the people over whom he reigns. He cares about his defense budget. And finally, we have a third example in chapter 21. Here Ahab murders one of his subjects, the man named Naboth, to steal his vineyard from him. And, and why not, really, right? After all, Ahab is the king. He is the king. And Naboth is just one of the little people in his kingdom. He's one of the voiceless ones. He's one of, one of the welfare crowd. And so when you have a king and someone in the welfare crowd, what does that little person matter? So are you beginning to get a feel here for Baalism, friends? Are you beginning to sense what Baalism is all about? <clears throat> it doesn't care about the children or the hungry or the powerless or the people on the fringe. All it cares about is me. Now, compare Baalism with the law of God. The law of God that Moses spoke to Israel. Moses told Israel to have compassion on those people on the fringe. 
One example, he said, when you harvest your fields, make sure that you leave some behind for the hungry. And you don't have to ask, you know, are they deserving of you leaving something behind? Have they, have they handled their time right? Have they used their abilities to the best that they could? It just says, leave some behind. Moses said to care for the widows. Moses said to make sure that anyone who fell down, make sure they have a chance to get up again. These are the measures by which we can see Yahweh. Where Yahweh is worshipped in truth, then even the little people have honor and value. So what we have here, friends, are two very, very different religions. You see, the truth is that if you change the God at the top of the system, then what you do is you affect the entire system beneath that God. If you replace God with, with Baal or any other God, then the land that's flowing with milk and honey becomes dry and lifeless then the kingdom of God becomes the kingdom of Baal or the kingdom of Ahab. That's a scary thing. But friends, it's something that I think we know today as well. We know that this is the way it is because we know from our own lives that when our marriages begin to crumble, when our children can't find their purpose in life, when bitterness and anger eclipse our joy, when our hungers lead us to burgers and fries more than to bread and wine, when the land becomes dry and barren, you can bet that the problem isn't that our shoes are too tight. Ultimately, it's not a problem with what's going on at the bottom. It's a problem with what's going on at the top. That's always the problem. We have either replaced Yahweh on the throne of our lives or we have placed another on that throne with Yahweh. That's when the kingdom of God becomes the kingdom of Baal. And friends, if you understand that, if you understand that basic notion, then you are actually one step ahead of Ahab. And you're ahead of Ahab if you get that the first commandment doesn't just forbid putting other gods ahead of Yahweh, but simply placing those other gods next to Yahweh. Next to Yahweh. And you see, that's what Ahab tried to do. He tried to play both sides of the fence. Think about Ahab's life. He married Jezebel, right? Which was a very shrewd political move. It increased his influence in the region tremendously, but religiously, that move was obtuse. Because with Jezebel, he brought Baal into the land. And at the same time, the same time he marries Jezebel, he has children with her, and he names his sons one, Ahaziah which means the Lord grasps. The other son he named Joram, which means the Lord is exalted. 
You see, Ahab somehow believed that you could worship both Baal and Yahweh. To him, those two things were not mutually exclusive. And Elijah, friends, did not go for that line of thinking. And that's why whenever Elijah and Ahab meet in these stories, the air is filled with tension. Elijah is an all-or-nothing sort of guy. And you see that right in his name as he's introduced. His name, El, which means God. I, which is a possessive pronoun, my. El, I, and Ja, which is Yahweh. His name is, my God is Yahweh. Elijah doesn't have room for two gods, and he lets you know it. Um, not many of you know this, but when we were first interviewing Pastor Brandon for his uh, position here at the church, we asked him to visit a youth group meeting, an on-the-edge meeting over in the youth room, um, and to field some questions from our teenagers that night. <clears throat> and so one, uh, one student asked him, so, being from Chicago, who do you like more, the Bears or the Packers? And Brandon gave a very diplomatic answer, as he tends to do. And he said something like, well, you know, I grew up a Bears fan, but the Bears have always been so bad, and so I adopted another team that I could actually root for. And that was the Packers. And so you could say I'm equally a Bears and a Packers fan. Now, I don't know if that kid went for that, <clears throat> but I know what Elijah would say about that. And he would have said, that's impossible, Brandon. The Packers and the Bears are incompatible. They are like oil and water. You can't be a fan of both of them, so choose one side or the other. And last week we heard that Elijah was right. You can't be a fan of both, can you? You knew that was coming. <clears throat> well, Elijah had the same message for Ahab. You can't serve Gohad and Baal. They're not compatible. You see, friends, Elijah knew that when people deify pleasure and sex and wealth and when they elevate self above everything else Elijah knew that that's when the spirit of compassion dies and the weak and the defenseless are exploited and the rights of the widows and the orphans are trampled and people become mere objects that are here to somehow make our lives better. Friends, Elijah knew you can't serve both Baal and Yahweh because the kingdom of Baal looks vastly different from the kingdom of Yahweh. And friends, we see that today as well. We see that in our own society, that there are other gods on the thrones of this world other than Yahweh. And we see babies aborted. 
We see children filling up the foster care system until it's overflowing. The list could go on and on and on. And the question for us is always, are we participating in that system? Have we lifted other gods up to the same level of Yahweh? Do we sing our hymns to Yahweh here on Sunday and then the rest of the week sing our hymns to these other gods? And Elijah comes to call us back to Moses. To call God's people back to Moses. Because you see, that's always the job of the prophets. To point us back to the Torah. Back to being the people that God intended. Back to being the people through whom God will bless all the peoples of the world. And that's what these first verses in chapter 17 are, are all about. God has Elijah deliver his message. No rain, not even a drop of dew. No rain will fall upon this land. A direct slap in the face of the rainmaker, in the face of Baal. God has Elijah deliver his message. There is one God, and that God is Yahweh. And then he sends Elijah back east of the Jordan to be cared for by ravens. Egg McMuffins in the morning, Big Macs in the evening. Directly from the hand of God. Now a question that I think we have to ask here is why does God send Elijah back east of the Jordan? Why there? And I think the answer is this, because that's where Moses' work ended. That's where Moses' work ended. That's as far as he got. Remember, he got to the Jordan River, but he couldn't lead the people across the river and into the land. He had led them all the way through the desert. And when they were in the desert, they learned that God would provide for all of their needs because he was the only thing they needed. They learned that they got their bread directly from the hand of God. And they heard God's instructions on how to live in the promised land. How to live and whom to love. But Moses never actually entered the land himself. And now God takes Moses, or Elijah back to where Moses ended. Why, do you think? I think it's because our God is a God of grace. And he's calling a do-over here. And he's saying, let's try this again. And let's see if we can get it right this time. But of course, they didn't get it right, did they? Because Moses doesn't work when he's sort of out here somewhere. Moses only works when he's in here. So God sent one day a new Elijah who again offered a new beginning, a new beginning for anyone. 
And this new Elijah once more pointed us back to Moses. Or maybe a better way to say that is he brought Moses into the present. For his words, this new Elijah, his words were filled with Moses' words. And he said and he proclaimed, this is where you start. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. Life is more than food. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. And yet, God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the ravens. That's where we start. When life seems to be spinning out of control, we come back to this very spot. When Elijah was fed by ravens, bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, trust God, obey God, the true God, Yahweh, and only Him, and seek His kingdom, the kingdom of His Son, Jesus Christ. And all these things will be added to you. Jesus and His kingdom, these two things do go together. They always will. You can't pull them apart. And Elijah will tell us so. Let's bow together um, in a word of prayer. Lord our God, we thank you for the prophet Elijah. And just as he troubled Israel out of their sin, we pray that you will use him to trouble us as well. To trouble us to the point that we will run to the new Elijah, to Jesus Christ. And in him we will find a new beginning. We will worship the Lord our God and him alone. And we will live in his service. And we will love our neighbors in his name. Thank you for Elijah, but more so thank you for Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen.